Most organizations have put more attention in recent years on better diversity, equity, and inclusion. And yet, those good intentions often get slowed down by our beliefs. On this episode, how to reduce some of the frictions that get in the way of real movement. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 574. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show helps you discover leadership wisdom through insightful conversations. I know from talking with many of you in our audience over the years that so many of you have a heart for diversity, equity, and inclusion, and making sure that all voices are heard, represented in your organization, and also that you personally are doing a better job at being able to support the important work around this. And yet, of course, there are so many things that hold back our good intentions. Today, I am really glad to be able to welcome an expert who's going to help challenge us to reduce some of the frictions that tend to slow down our good intentions to move forward. I'm so pleased to welcome back to the show Deepa Prashathaman. Deepa is the co-founder of N-Formation, a company which provides a brave, safe, and new space for professionals who are women of color. She spent more than 20 years at Deloitte and was a first, an Indian-American woman, and one of the youngest people to make partner in the company's history. In her time there, she helped grow Deloitte's social impact practice served as a national managing partner of inclusion, and served as the managing partner of WIN, the firm's renowned program to recruit, retain, and advance women. Deepa speaks extensively on women in leadership. She's been featured at national conferences and in publications including Bloomberg Businessweek, The Huffington Post, and Harvard Business Review. She is the author of The First, The Few, The Only, How Women of Color Can Redefine Power in Corporate America. Deepa, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me back. I'm so excited to be here. It's it's like a reflection. I can I can think back to a couple of years ago when I was in a very different place. Yeah, me too. I am I've enjoyed following your work over these last few years and seeing what you've done with Enformation and seeing all the comments online and now so much of your work coming together in this new book and it's just been so fun to go through it and to learn from you again. And as I was thinking about this conversation, I couldn't help but reflect on one of the stories you tell in the book in highlighting uh, a reality that I think you know speaks to some of the things that I think a lot of us don't think about. You mention early on in the book that as late as the 1970s, only two or three percent of Boeing engineers were women. And you follow that up by talking about your experience of getting on an airplane. I was wondering if you could share that with us. Absolutely. So that story came out of a conversation I had with Renee Myers, who's the VP of inclusion at Netflix and a good friend. Uh, we were talking and I asked her to, you know, just share some ideas on inclusion. And she started talking about airplane design. And she said that, you know, when she was the mom of young children, her children are older now, when she, when her kids were young, she used to really stress about putting her luggage overhead, like the rolly boards overhead, that it would fall on their, on her children's heads when there was turbulence. And she was saying as a mom, she would have never designed the airplane in that way. 
And I jumped in right away, Dave, just because I'm five, one and a half, right? So five, mm. one, five, one practically is what my husband says on a good day. And so for me, putting my luggage overhead is like a real challenge. And I started sharing with her. I used to do three cities a week. So it was something I would worry about like a half an hour before getting on the airplane. How am I going to get the luggage down even? And maybe a taller gentleman. And, and Dave, you even mentioned, I think you're taller than me, obviously. You said you don't think about that, right? So a 5'10 gentleman and taller may not even be thinking about anything about the luggage and putting it overhead. So here we have Renee thinking about as a mom, it's not working. And Piero, you have me thinking about height, it's not working. And other people thinking about other things. And I love the analogy because it's basically saying we weren't involved in the design. Design, so it doesn't work for us, which is similar to workplaces. But I also love it because it's, an, it's, it's a discussion on belonging. I feel like I don't belong on an airplane within five minutes of getting on the airplane. And I do think workplaces can, can be like that as well. So for me, it's a message and a story around, I think workplaces similar to the airplane are you know not a meritocracy. They show up differently for different groups. And why can't we talk about that? Because the challenge in that story is I often used to think about why am I not tall enough? Why did I not wear the right shoes? Like, why did I pack so many things? I made it about me when I think it's okay now to say, but that wasn't really designed with me in mind. And that's a little bit of the system's problem and the system's fault in addition to, yes, maybe, maybe it'd be great if I didn't pack so much, but let's not worry about that right now. <laughs> yeah. You write in the book, and I'm quoting you, the truth is corporate America has never actually fostered true equity, especially for women of color. And company cultures aren't set up to support us. And I think about that example you just shared of, I think that those of us who, uh, like me, like I'm 5'9", I don't think about that when I got it. I've never had that thought mm. until reading that story in the book. I'm like, oh, that actually would cause a bunch of stress every time you are planning to get on a plane and boarding, like, how am I going to handle that? Am I going to rely yeah. on someone else for help? All those things. And I think that for a lot of us that don't fall into that framework of that being an obstacle, we don't even think about it. And we don't right. see the frictions where they show up. And this got me thinking about a guest we had on last year, Deepa, uh, David Schoenthal, who's done a bunch of work on organizational change. And typically a lot in a lot of organizational change conversations we tend to think about things that he calls fuel how do we get the message out how do we have the marketing campaign how do we talk about it a lot and get people engaged but we don't necessarily stop to think about friction the things that actually hold back the good intentions of moving forward and i think it would be really useful i know for me and i'm guessing for others to look at some of the things you talk about in the book from a standpoint of friction, many of us have good intentions, but ultimately there are frictions that hold us back of actually being able to execute on our good intentions. And one of the frictions and delusions you talk about in the book is the statement, we can't find you. We can't find where you are out there as far as candidates who are women of color and, and other underrepresented groups. And perhaps I could share an example to frame this. I have an Academy member right now who is the CEO of his firm. He is very passionate about making sure that there is diversity and inclusion at all levels in the organization, that the firm represents the people that they serve really well. And he has espoused that. He is passionate about it. And if you ask the people in his firm, they would say, we also believe in that and we espouse it. And yet, when the candidates come in for new opportunities, they don't look very diverse. 
And so he's had this conversation inside the organization of talking with HR and the recruiting team and the line managers of like, well, what's going on? We've all talked about this. We've espoused this. And the message that often comes back is, hey, we would love to bring in diverse, more diverse candidates, but we just can't find them. They're not there. And I'm curious when you run into that delusion, what's a starting point to begin to take the next step on that? Yeah, I love that. I love that story and that example. And I would say I'd literally had this exact discussion with two white male executives in the last 48 hours. Oh, you know, and, I, and, and so I, I think it's very relevant. I think that the research that I did, and I, I don't think this is necessarily new, but it's, it's absolutely worth talking about, is that we tend to gravitate towards people who look like us, right? And that is true in who we promote. That is true in who we surround ourselves with on our weekends, but it's also true within our networks. And so things like LinkedIn or other social groups, our networks are literally going to reflect who we are, where we come from, you know, where we grew up and, and those sorts of demographics. So when we say we can't find people, the things that we're not understanding is that we tend to still have a very heavy HR system where a lot of the people who sit in the seats are white leaders. And so as a result, their networks tend to look like them. And so when we say we can't find people, I often tell my clients, you're not looking in the right places or you're not looking in different ways. And you're using the same ways that we've always recruited or the same lists or the same mechanisms. And you are are going to get the same results. Whereas if I meet with the women of color I work with and ask them who's on their list and who's on their networks, they could easily list out hundreds, if not you know thousands of people of color who are ready and willing and uh, qualified. So I do think we have to kind of take a look at you know our systems and our networks because that absolutely informs like how we show up and, and who we think is available to us. So it's a, it's a delusion on the pipeline is not broken. It's how we're looking. It's I, I call it like a looking and finding problem rather than a pipeline problem. I'm curious what you've seen work on that. Like when you have a team, maybe it's the recruiters, maybe it's senior leadership that tend to be monolithic in whatever way, whether it be white men or whatever demographic, and they start, they get that. They're like, okay, I see that. I see that maybe it's my own network and part of my bias of just the people I've surrounded myself with. Is there something you found that's helpful as a starting point of being able to then turn the lens a little bit and to start think I start actually getting practically like people in front of you that aren't looking just like you yeah, I mean, you're going to have to hire different recruiting firms. You're going to have to hire different people to sit in the seats because we bring different networks, right? So when companies reach out to information, they know they're going to get a diverse slate of candidates or a diverse list because that's all we have. So there are recruiters and people that focus in these spaces. They tend not to be the big ones that most big companies use. So I think it's a little bit of understanding that. I also think it's calling upon people of color to sit in the seats because I guarantee their networks will, will look different. I interviewed Stacey Brown. Philpot in the book. And uh, she was a former CEO of TaskRabbit. And she also sits on multiple boards. She's a Black woman. And you know, we talked about a, a, a different story in power. But one of the things she talks about quite a bit, not in my book, but I've read many, many articles, is that when she came into TaskRabbit, she completely changed the recruiting process because she used her own network. She literally called upon her own lists. And so she had such high numbers in the technology industry around diversity because she called people and said, this is a good place to come. And I'm going to make sure the culture works for you. So I do think it matters who's sitting in the seats. And I think we have to, you know, as a start, be more thoughtful about, you know, the systems and the people and the suppliers we use to kind of fill, fill our gaps. One of the other delusions you highlight is one that I think many of us, I know I certainly fell into this camp, used to consider this 
something that was a positive, which is I don't see color. And I, I think a lot of us were taught this, especially in our generation as kids, like we don't see color, we're colorblind. And yet that actually ends up being a bit of a friction of what's problematic about that thinking. Yeah, I would say I used to hear all the time, well, I don't see color or I can't wait to two or three years from now when we don't need these DNI roles, right? We won't we won't need these roles, yeah. you know, in our companies. And you know, I have to say like probably 4 or 5 years ago when I used to hear that, I it never sat right, but I didn't have the words for it. I think what I tell people now is by saying you don't see race or by saying that you hope we don't have these roles, you're denying a little bit of my own reality back to that airplane story. The the system shows up differently for me. So I do see race. I experience it every single day. And by you saying you don't see it, it's denying the fact that it does show up for me. And it's not holding space for the fact that walking in my shoes is different. So I think that's really what's problematic with that sort of statement. I mean, I understand the intent behind it, but it's actually not practical. And it denies a lot of our history, you know, in in our countries and, and, you know, in our legacy that does make it different and is important for many people of color that I work with to carry forward. And we don't want to deny that we we have those histories and where we come from. Yeah, it's a really interesting statement and that it's one of those things that I think on its face, like it sounds like, okay, this beautiful utopia where we don't yes. see color and we just see people on the content of their characters, you know, Martin Luther, Martin Luther King famously said. But it, it's it's almost counterproductive in a way of like if you have that belief system, you sort of can get to a place mentally where you kind of like and and there have been times in my life I could think I've been in this place where like okay, you know, I, I I'm good, I've done the work, um, yeah. I'm already there as far as my belief system. And there's not work for me to do further. And it's just, I know it held me back for a while. And I think it held, it holds back so many of being able to then engage further and to challenge oneself on how you're processing the world. I think that's true. I also think it sets us up for believing that as long as everyone works hard, they'll get ahead. And so it puts the blame and the onus back on women of color or people of color, you know, all the time or, or a group that's not in dominant seats, right? Saying, well, if you just worked harder, you would get you would get there. Like there, there's nothing about your experience that's different. And so I just think that, it, yes, it is dangerous and allows us to keep a lot of the status quo in place. I mean, a lot of what I'm trying to raise with the delusions, I call them delusions of corporate America, is that these are things we've been taught, but they're not necessarily true. And do they serve us? Like, do we, they, do we want them to be our truths going forward? That's really what this work is about. Yeah. And that, that statement doesn't really serve us very well. Um, I, I'm curious if you've ever had this experience that you've entered into a conversation with someone about this, of the I don't see color thinking, and you've come away from that conversation with them or you making some movement in a different way on thinking. And I'm, I'm curious if there's anything you've said or anything that's been helpful to someone who's grown up with that thinking to start to invite them to look at things a little differently. Have you found anything that's worked on that? Yeah. I, I mean, you know, as the book has been reaching more people, I would tell you that the airplane analogy is really landing for people. I think there the, that people may be open to the fact that corporate America shows up differently or cor- corporations show up differently for different people. But I think the airplane analogy lands for a lot of people because, as you said, it's not something they thought about before. So I do think, you know, what, what really helps in these spaces is storytelling, is really making space for conversations because I do, you know, I, similar to you, I want to believe 
most people want to have hard conversations and want to do the right thing and want to learn and want to do better. But I don't know that everyone can relate. So I do think sharing stories, and that's why there's so many stories in the book, because I wanted it to be a story-led conversation, because I think that's how we change on on race in in particular. Race is such a, a loaded topic for so many people. And it's so complicated to unpack. It has like an emotional and a a logical component to it in a way that so many other issues don't. Like people are so entrenched. And so I just think storytelling is how we get past this and get people to understand, you know, that there are differences and that saying things like I don't see race actually does negate, right? So many of our lived experiences as people of color. Yeah. I I hear there a bit of an invitation for someone who's thinking that way of like, I don't see color of like spending some time of listening to some of the stories and seeking out some of the stories and reading your book and reading the books of others who are different than us, like thinking about those. I I was thinking, as you were saying that, speaking of everyday examples, I saw online in the last year sometime, a advertisement for Band-Aids Mm-hmm. That band aid, the company band aid, and skin tones, yes. yeah, mm-hmm. of changing skin tones to match the color of one's skin mm-hmm. and to have a full spectrum of colors. Mm-hmm. And I saw that ad, Deepa, and I thought to myself, it never occurred to me mm-hmm. the racism yeah. <laughs> in that, like wearing, like going to the store and not being able to make a purchase for a injury. Without yep. being reminded that your your skin color is not the quote unquote right color, right? No, and I think it's. It, I mean, it's it. It's so part of when you grow up in this society and you are not in majority seats, right? It's such yeah. a part of what happens, right? So it's from everything from pantyhose, you know, what what is called, considered nude to shoe colors that are called, considered nude to skin tones to everything. I mean, makeup growing up for me, I could never find any of the right colors, right? Because I didn't exist in the in the palettes that, you know, were there coming up. Dolls, right? Like dolls don't represent us. So I think part of what I also want people to understand is part of why I think many of us feel like we don't belong is because we get those messages, those delusions, those narratives from so many different places, not just from the people we interact with as adults, but those messages come from childhood. Yeah. They come from popular culture. They come from the media. I've, I've lived a life where I was told I was not a leader if I look at all the messages around me. I've never seen myself represented as a leader until the last few years. And even then it's been sparse. And so I think that's really what what we're talking about is there's a denial of that reality that I have had to do so much active work to even be in the running. And that's what I heard from so many of the women I interviewed, because there was so much done to show me actively and, and, and unconsciously that I wasn't a leader or I didn't belong or I wasn't in the majority seat. So I think that's the, really the difference that we're talking about here. You know, you asked me for a story. I, I will share, like, as I've been sharing the airplane story, I heard a story about scissors, and maybe this is more relatable than the airplane for some people. Uh, a mom was sharing with me that she really has struggled with this idea because her child is left-handed and uses left-hand scissors, and there were no left-handed scissors in the classroom. And the child kept asking for the left-handed scissors, and the mom wrote a note and, and the whole thing. And at one point, the mom went into the into the school to talk to the teacher and said, um, and the teacher said, well, there's so many right-handed scissors. Like, I, I don't see the complicated process. Just put it in your left hand. And the mom asked the teacher to actually hold, you know, had brought left-handed scissors and told her to put them in her right hand and try and cut. And it wasn't until she tried that she understood the dilemma. Like to her, it was like all the same thing. And that's a horrible story for a teacher, but but it's true. And so I just, I think that that empathy, or even if you conceptually understand something, the actual going through it and the storytelling or the physically holding the scissors made a really big difference. And so how do we get more people to experience what it's like, I think is really what you and I are talking about right now. 
one of the other delusions you highlight is that that's too political. Yes. Whatever the topic of the day is, as a as a leader, as an organization, like I can't really touch that because it's too political. Tell me about that delusion and how does that get in our way? Yeah. So I was called by a number of white leaders, um, white male leaders in particular, after George Floyd's murder to look at, you know, some of the announcements and some of the letters that they wanted to write to their employees or put out in the public. You know, there was a real push to put out statements. And I think a lot of people struggled because it was one of the first times as a company or as a leader, they were putting out something around race. And as we've already talked about, race is so complicated and, and such an emotional pain and shame topic for so many people. And so I would get these calls. And I remember one in particular, I talk about it in the book where I worked with this executive. I did not know well, I got a last minute, please help me. So I got on the phone with him for a number of hours. We wrote and rewrote the letter that his team had put together. He felt like it was missing things. And I added some language that I thought was really powerful and needed. And he kept coming back and saying, I just, I'm not ready to say that. I can't say that that's too political. And we ended up having a very hard conversation about the fact that if he was going to say something, I felt like he had to say something that actually landed or why were we doing this? And I think that's true of a lot of companies and a lot of DE&I work right now. A lot of it is performative. And I think we're finally at the point where we're having conversations about the fact that it is. And I believe we can move to a different place, but we can't move to a different place if we can't have the hard conversations, if we can't get political, if we can't unpack what race and the history around race is all over the world. And, and this, this kind of topic, we can't, we can't just go through it. We have to literally unpack it and walk, you know, look at it all and take it all apart. And then we can maybe work through it. And that's, what's different about this. So I just think there's a lot where we, we are doing checkbox activities. There's a lot where we are not really having the hard conversations because it's uncomfortable. And the you know, topics like this are not ones where we can do that. Have you found a a practice or a type of conversation that's helpful in moving a senior leader or an organization a bit past checking the boxes and the performative kind of things that we, we see a lot and giving people a bit of the courage to enter into a harder conversation? Because it is, it is hard. Yes, it is hard. And and I appreciate it. It's, it's it's so hard, right? If you get it wrong with our cancel culture and everything else, yeah, we have. yeah. So yeah. I totally get it, right? I I've gotten a couple of calls after the airplane analogy where people have said, "Well, do I help you with the suitcase because I'm afraid, right? Are you going right. to tell me you, know, you can do it yourself, or should I help you hold the door?" Like, I mean, I, these are all complicated topics where there's no not necessarily a right answer. So I hear you. I think what I have ended up talking with a lot of white leaders about that seems to really resonate is this idea of permission. I think we, in the same way that I'm asking women of color to give themselves permission to stand their ground and to speak up and to find their power, I'm asking white leaders to be more patient with themselves and give themselves permission to get it wrong is what I usually say. Because I guarantee we are all getting it wrong. I'm getting it wrong. I mean, language and words are changing. There was an article where that a friend of mine did yesterday that she doesn't use the word microaggressions anymore. And I do, right? Like she, she believes that that's an inappropriate word. And so I think all of us are still learning. All of us are still coming to terms with vocabulary and language. And so I want white leaders to give themselves permission to get it wrong, to maybe have practice. I was just on a call earlier today where a white man asked, you know, if I get it wrong, what am I supposed to say? Because I know I'm going to get it wrong. So almost have your sayings practiced, you know, give yourself permission to get it wrong. That's what I would say. Hmm. Yeah, I think we... We all fear so much, especially on this. I mean, given the environment, like getting something wrong. And the reality is that 
we're all going to mess it up, right? Yes. I know I've messed it up. I've messed it up. We're all going to, and I do, this is what the work I do. We're all going to mess it up. And so I just think this is not a topic we can afford to try and be perfect on. Yeah. I think that's the message. My senses in most situations, I'm thinking of things I've seen happen and play out, not only in my career, but in our, for our members, that if that humility is there, that I'm going to yeah. get things wrong, and I and I still take action in spite of it. And then when I do get something wrong, inevitably, that I'm quickly willing to stop and listen and reconsider what I did and have that yeah. humility that most of the time that works out pretty well for people. And in fact, actually helps move them along like the whole organization. It's the I dig in my heels and I'm not willing to accept that I've like kind of that initial like, oh, someone challenges me on something and that in initial intention for a lot of people to defend themselves. That's the part where we like really get ourselves in trouble if we take that mindset. I think that's right. I think it's the defensiveness. So, you know, what I ended up counseling this this white male leader on a call and I, I didn't know him. It was just a, a conference and I got asked this question. He said, I know I'm going to get it wrong. What do you want me to say? Like, it's just apologizing isn't working. You know, and I, I think it's I think it is acknowledging what I just said. I did not mean it to be hurtful, but I, I'm, I'm listening to you. I want to learn more. I'm so sorry I said it. You know, the other thing I would say is it's also how you say it. So if you could say, I'm sorry, what else do you want me to do? Right. That is very different than I'm truly sorry. I had no understanding of what, what, how that would land for you. And pausing, right? And leaving space for the person to respond. It's in body, it's in it's in your body language, right? If you if you say something and then someone says that hurts them, and then all of a sudden you're puffed up and leaning forward, that's an aggressive, assertive stance. That's a very hard place to kind of feel like you're learning from. And so I do think it's it's all of that. It's it's giving yourself permission to get it wrong, but then also being open and soft to kind of really let in the weight of, of, yeah, I just stepped in something. And so I want to learn and do better. And I'm absolutely acknowledging that that was painful for you. One of the other delusions is that DE&I will fix everything. Yes. <laughs> you cite a really fascinating statistic from LinkedIn that the title head of diversity has expanded 107% in the last five years. And on its face, that seems like a really, really good thing for us and our society and the corporate space. And yet, it's not always as simple as it first appears. And there are some folks, even within the DEI space, that would say, you know, that is um, sometimes problematic too, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I did talk to, they didn't want to go on record, but I talked to some, you know, women of color leaders who actually said they don't like the DEI role, like chief inclusion officer role, because it does suggest that one person is responsible. You know, I, I would tell you, Dave, I'm getting a lot of calls. So I work with a lot of senior women of color leaders, a lot of calls. I don't mean like one or two, I mean a lot of calls for women of color who've been, you know, who are in these roles, these new roles. Some of them have never been in roles like this before. Some of them have, but they were promised all these things. So they were promised budget. They were promised reporting structure. They were promised staff. And they've been in the roles for, let's say, six months, maybe a year at this point, and they got none of those things. And so it feels mm. like a very empty role and they're not able to have impact and they're struggling. And so I think that what part of the message with that delusion is one, one person cannot solve this on its own. This is really culture change work, right? This is not kind of just add a person mix. You know, I, I say that a lot about women of color. Like you can't just put women of color in seats and then assume everything is going to be great. 
because the culture hasn't changed, right? And in a lot of cases, those women of color are calling me after the six months and saying, this culture is horrible for me and I can't be myself and I want to get out, right? And so I think there is a lot to be said for, yes, we de- we need DEI, but it needs to be at all levels. You know, most people feel they don't belong. There's a new McKinsey study. It's at, it's at a manager level, right? It's at a day-to-day sort of interaction level. That's where the belonging disconnect is really happening. And so I think we need to be really conscious and careful about just assuming that programs or, you know, three people are going to solve a company's woes. That's not how this works. Yeah. it It's such a disheartening thing to hear. And I'm guessing, of course, this isn't everybody necessarily, but there, but there's certainly a bunch of folks that fall into that category. And I'm thinking about the person who's on the executive team who's not in that role, mm-hmm. whose peer is the head of diversity or chief inclusion officer or whatever the title is. And I'm asking you a question you may not know the answer to, but sure. when you talk to those people who like say, you know, my, my peer is in this role and I'm seeing that um, maybe I'm hearing the struggles from them or maybe yeah. I'm noticing on my own, is there anything that that person might do that helps to move this along a little bit? Yeah, I think it's taking responsibility that it's your work as well, right? I mean, a COO, a CEO, a CFO, inclusion, DEI, belonging, making sure your employees feel seen and heard, that is everybody's work. And so asking questions about how you can sponsor programs, how you can lend your name to things, how you can show up, how you can carry the flag, like what is something Mm -hmm. that this new person is trying to do that they're having a hard time with? I think it's lending your voice to all of those things. But I think it's really buying in that this is not a separate track. You know, this is a this has to become something that is ingrained in the business in all ways. It can't be a separate activity. And I just feel like we're in a moment, like I, you know, we're we're having a hard conversation about a lot of delusions. But I also think we're in a moment where I am really optimistic. I feel like the last few years and what we have gone through around COVID have really opened up a conversation about what is possible, how work is not working for anybody, you know, not just women of color. It's honestly not working for most groups. And so and including white men, by the way. And so how do we have a different conversation about making it work for everybody. And that's what this work is about. And I feel like more than ever, people are starting to, and I, I want to be really clear. I feel like just in the last few weeks, I am able to share some of the things that in, in the book are very controversial and leadership teams are sitting down with me and open to hearing that in a way that I would not have expected even six months ago. So I do feel like we're shifting, but I think we're shifting because we're realizing our employees are walking out or demanding more of the great resignation. Everything else that's happening is calling attention to the fact that we need to make change and it has to happen at all levels with all people. What's something that you find people more open to now that like some of those conversations are happening that six months ago, not so much? Yeah. You know, I think that there is a more openness to wanting to hear the story. So tell me how it is different, right? Tell me what it's like. I think I'm hearing more women of color when I share my own stories, but the executives team say, yes, I did experience that. I was, I used to hear, well, I hear you. That doesn't happen here in this company. Like that's, that makes sense. I can totally see that happening elsewhere, but that's not the experience here. I, it's starting to change. You know, a few a few years ago when I first got called in, when I'm talking about those letters I was helping executives write, I used to walk into a lot of offices, and I still do, with white male executives who would say to me, like, my employees will tell me how it is. You know, I have created space where my Black employees can tell me the truth. And I would then go have conversations an hour or two later with those same Black and Black, black teams, and I would hear completely different stories. I just think we're starting to really figure out how we hold space for conversations, how we talk about things. I don't think we've actually changed and created processes where it is fully safe to tell our stories, but I think we're starting to. And I think that's what I'm starting to see more and more. 
There's one other delusion that I think is worth mentioning out loud, the delusion that you, uh, quote, you got white manned, which I hadn't heard this phrase until I saw it in the book. You write, when you are accustomed to privilege, equality can feel like oppression. And it's interesting you uh, cite a Ernst & Young study where they surveyed a thousand workers and found that more than a third of the respondents felt that their company's focus on diversity lessened the focus on white men. And I was thinking about that, and there's a tendency among people, and I think in particular business people, to see things as a zero sum. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't run into that. I don't know about, about you, Deepa, but I don't, I don't run into that in as many other places in my life, like in nonprofits, my wife works in higher education, but there is something interesting about the business context where, like, we think of competition and we think of things as zero sum. And I'm wondering if you've seen anything that's helpful of like the person who tends to look at the world as, you know, if, well, if you win, I have to lose. That's helpful in starting to reframe some of that a bit. I think this is hands down the the number one thing or the biggest obstacle to getting true equality in the workplace. So this idea that there is limited power or limited seats or limited resources, the idea of scarcity. And part of what I'm really trying to get at is the delusion we've been taught about scarcity and all parts of our life is just wrong. Like it, it, it doesn't have to be that way. We can make the pie bigger. And, you know, I would tell you that the best example, then we'll, we'll back up into the, the, you know, how white men can maybe, you know, have this conversation, but I see it a lot with women. So one of the biggest findings in the book was that women feel competitive with other women. It would come up in every discussion at the end when I would say, is there anything else you want to share or you want me to look into? Can you talk about how women, you know, we don't help each other. And I think that comes from that same idea that there's one seat. We've all been taught for some reason in workspaces, especially in corporate spaces, that, you know, there's 12 seats and one of them is for a woman. So if if two of us are competing, only one of us is going to get it. But who decided there were first 12 seats and who decided there was only one for a woman? Like, where did that come from? And as soon as I say that, you can see the women's faces change. I think the same is true for the conversations around for white men. Like, why does it have to be that if I get a seat, it's taking one from you, Dave? Like, who decided that? Like, why does it have to work that way? Why does it have to be limited? And I think it's a flaw in what we've been taught around power. I think it's a flaw in what we've been taught around scarcity. And those are examples of larger delusions, right? The, the first chapter is about just corporate delusions. But there's a lot of delusions that we've been taught that, again, I think the last few years are making us question if we want to believe those values and those things anymore. And if they serve us, they may have served us one day, you know, but they don't serve us anymore. Well, my invitation for everyone is to take the first step and find Deepa's book uh, as a opportunity to start hearing some of the stories that you may not have considered before or may not have heard as many of. Uh, We have just literally taken a tiny slice out of chapter one (laughs) for this conversation. (laughs) There is so much more in the book. And if you, like me, are wanting to get in the space where you're hearing stories that you maybe didn't grow up with or you weren't around in your corporate life or personal life for whatever reason, I would invite you to lean in on that so you really do begin to have the empathy and the understanding of what different experiences are like. So thank you so much for bringing this work to us, Deepa. Um, I want to ask you one other question. I often ask experts as they've been doing their work, like what they've changed their minds on. And as you've been doing this work over the last couple of years, writing the book, doing the research, talking to so many folks, and then and then synthesizing it in this work. I'm curious, uh, what's something that you've changed your mind on during that time? Yeah. So, I mean, 
we didn't cover this in our conversation, but I'd say the biggest thing I've changed my mind on is my own definition of success. So I was one of those productivity junkies, right? I was rewarded for it. I moved so quickly through my career. So the more I did, right, the more I advanced and the more money I made and the more titles I got and all of those things. It was divorced from my health, right? I sacrificed, you know, sleep, eating, all of the things to kind of be productive. And my new definition of success comes with health. It cannot be a separate topic. And I think that's probably true for a lot of people right now. I think people are realizing that success can't come at the price of, you know, well-being or burnout. Um, And that's a new thing for me. So going forward, success will always have a large component, if not the main component being health. Because if you don't have that, it doesn't matter how productive or how big a title you have. Deepa Prashathaman is the author of The First, The Few, The Only, How Women of Color Can Redefine Power in Corporate America. Deepa, thank you so much for your work. Thank you so much for holding space for conversations like this. If this conversation was helpful for you, several related episodes I'd recommend. One of them is episode 544, Start Finding Overlooked Talent with Johnny Taylor Jr. Johnny is the president and CEO of SHRM, the Society for Human Resource Management. Last year when Johnny and I spoke on the show, we talked about this myth that Deep also mentioned today, the we can't find you myth and some of the practical things that organizations and leaders can do to do a better job of finding talent that is traditionally overlooked. Episode 544. 44 for a number of strategies and tactics, practical things that you can do to begin to make that shift in your organization. I'd also recommend episode 552, The Way Managers Can Be Champions for Justice. Minda Hartz is a leader in the space of supporting women of color in the workplace. Uh, She's joined us on the show twice before, most recently on episode 552, walking us through some of the practical things we can do as leaders inside of our organizations to be champions for justice and to help our organizations to do a better job, episode 552, for her thoughts on that. And then finally, I'd recommend episode 557, Overcome Resistance to New Ideas. David Schoenthal was my guest on that episode, and you may have noticed I took a bit of inspiration from that conversation on his distinction between fuel and friction for this conversation today. And many organizations, there's a lot of fuel behind initiatives on DEI in programs and initiatives and strategies. And And yet sometimes we don't talk about the friction. David talks about that in general in the organizational change process in that episode. And we looked at it today from the standpoint of where are the frictions showing up in the areas that are holding us back from our good intentions. Episode 557 for a lot more detail on that, on change in every aspect. All of those conversations you can find on the coachingforleaders.com website. If you will set up your free membership at coachingforleaders.com, It's going to give you access to the entire library of episodes that I've aired since 2011 and the ability to search by topic. One of those topic areas is diversity, equity, and inclusion. You'll see that inside of the episode library, many conversations over the years on this topic and many more to come, of course, plus tons of other topics and resources. Uh, One of the other benefits inside free membership is access to the weekly leadership guide, which comes to your inbox each week with details from me on the episode episode notes, resources that we've mentioned, and just as importantly, many of the other resources I've been finding online, other episodes from other podcasts, 
articles, experts that I think you should know about that will support you in your ongoing leadership development. All of that you can access plus much more inside the free membership by setting up your account at coachingforleaders.com. It'll take just a couple of moments and you will have full access to everything inside there. Next week, I'm glad to welcome Richard Ryerson to the show. He is the host of the popular Dose of Leadership podcast, and Richard is also a commercial airline pilot. Next week, we're going to be looking at the topic of how to make it easier to challenge authority. And Richard is going to take us through uh, looking at that from a standpoint of aviation. Professional pilots have done an amazing job in recent decades of making this easier inside the cockpit. We're going to walk through that next week, and Richard will help illuminate some of the tactics that we can also use inside our own organizations to challenge authority when the time is right. Join me for that conversation next Monday, and I wish you a great week. Take care.